We're going to be moving along in our series over the book of Judges. We're going to be in Judges chapter 11 this morning. I want to encourage you, if you brought your Bible with you, to go ahead and turn there. It's Judges chapter 11, verses 29 through 40. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. Uh, and you will probably also see somewhere in your vicinity uh, a few Bibles if you would like to pick up one of those. When I was a freshman in college, undergrad, Arkansas University, out in Abilene, Texas, uh, I was going in knowing what I wanted to do. Uh, I know I knew from the age of 15 that God was leading me into the ministry, uh, and so I had planned uh, when I went to college uh, to go and, and get the church ministry track, pastoral ministry, uh, which was the major that I went into, knowing that I went to seminary after that, um, and I was, so I knew to take Bible classes early. Uh, I think I had systematic theology, uh, or whatever we called it at Hurt Simmons then. I arrived to that, tried to dive in on the deep end and just get used to uh, everything that it meant to have religious education. Uh, and one of the classes I had was a Bible class, but it was a class that everybody at the university had to have. Uh, and that was Old Testament sermon. Uh, so if you've ever thought about going to Hardin Simmons or AC or any of those, no, Bible classes, Baylor, same way, Bible classes come with the territory, something you have to take. So I thought it would be an easy class, you know, Sunday school level material is kind of what I was anticipating. Um, and then I got my schedule, uh, and I realized that the name of the professor was Dr. Susan Pickett. Susan Pickett is the only, or was then anyway, uh, the only female on staff uh, as far as the teaching department, Bible teaching department. At Hardin Simmons. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you, at 18 years old, I held that against her. Uh, I thought that I wouldn't have anything to learn because I had the mentality that God had been used women in that capacity uh, to teach me things that I should know about the Bible, but that was a manly job. And so I went in with that understanding and with that thinking, and she blew up that mentality pretty quickly. Uh, she's smarter than I'm ever going to be in general. Uh, and specifically when it comes to teaching the Old Testament, more knowledgeable than I'm ever going to be. Uh, I was able to see things in, in new ways. I learned quickly that this was not Sunday school level material. This was deep looking behind the text, looking at the text, looking at the original language, things that I had never thought of. What happened was I went into the wrong view of God, that God couldn't use certain people to teach me certain things. God corrected that view, thankfully, and was able to, despite my ignorance, was able to change me from the inside out so that I could learn something new during my time there. In my second or third semester, I can't remember, took another class with her called Methods of Biblical Interpretation that I still use, the skills that I've learned from that I still use today when I craft sermons. It's a very helpful tool learning how to dissect scripture, interpret scripture, and apply scripture. But I went in with that wrong view and it affected the way that I viewed another human being. Maybe you can identify with that. A fairly prolific Christian author by the name of A.W. Tozer once said that the most important thing about us is our idea of God or our view of God. That the most important thing about us as mankind is the image we have of God. I think that the actual way he said it, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. How do you conceive of God? He says in a rather lengthy quote in his knowledge of the holy book, uh, he says that, um, he goes on to say that what we think about God has this funny way of coming out in the way that we live, in the way that we treat other people. He even goes on to say that the most important thing about the church is the way she thinks of God. 
And so the most important thing about us, according to Tozer, is how we think of God. What comes to mind when we imagine God is the most important thing about us. Now, it might seem to be overstating the point, right? No, that's not the case. The most important thing about you is when you're nice to other people, you know, what you do, um, you know, what you dedicate your life to, how much, all of that goes in with that. But it all starts with a view of God that we have. A wrong view of God can be disastrous for God's people. A wrong view of God can be disastrous for God's people. It can affect everything that we do, especially the way that we treat others around us. And we're going to see that exemplified in a terrible story today in Scripture. I'm just going to go ahead and be brutally honest with you. This is not a fun story in any capacity. Judges is, is becoming known for that. If you've been coming here the last several weeks, you know that it's been heavy, it's been tough. Uh, looking at these heroic figures that really aren't that heroic throughout the book of Judges. Kind of talked about that last week with Gideon, that there's a revelation you get about midway through the book that nobody here is a hero other than God. God is the deliverer. All of the heroes in the story are all fallen and messed up in their own ways. And God saves us despite that fact. Despite how big of failures we are, despite the many times that we turn our back on God and His ways, God continues to extend grace and love and salvation, even though we don't deserve it. It's kind of what the book of Judges is all about. The people of God forget about God. They aren't obedient to God's command when they go into the promised land to do what He said to do, which was remove foreigners from their midst and foreign gods from their midst. They don't do that. And every time that they forget the truth that God gave them, they, they do what's right in their own eyes. They do evil in the sight of the Lord. Every time that happens, God takes His hand off of protection and allows the foreign people to come in, take over them. The people eventually, the people of Israel eventually get so tired and depressed that they cry out to God. God sends a deliverer. The deliverer rescues the people, and then everything happens again. The people sit again, and we have this what we've been calling a downward spiral. Not a circle, but a downward spiral because each time telling the story gets worse, and it is certainly the case today. This is probably, looking through the book and anticipating this passage, this is probably the hardest story in the book of Judges, the one that we're going to look at today. Because, just in the spoiler alert, um, at the focal center of the story is human sacrifice and God's silence as it happens. And trying to figure out what is going on. Why is this allowed to happen? So this is a heavy book. We're going to have to back up and talk about a lot of other scriptures in order to try to understand the scripture. But I encourage you to really hang on here because I think there is a very, very, very important truth in the story of Jephthah that we can apply with us today. So again, it's going to be Judges chapter 11, verse 29 through 40. If you remember last week, we were in Judges chapter 6, mainly. Uh, we talked about 7 as well, which is where Gideon's battle takes place. Uh, so I want to kind of catch you up on what happens between uh, 8 and 11 that we're in today. Uh, in chapter 8, we decide to kind of see the resolution of Gideon's story. We see him go after and finish off the Midianites, finish off the Midianite princes in particular. There's kind of a civil war brewing, it seems like, between Gideon and the people of Seventh. Uh, we learned that Gideon had 70 sons that he left behind, uh, and that's important because 70 plus 1 actually is the number. Uh, There's a guy named Abimelech, who is the son of Gideon's concubine, that we see come up in chapter 9. Uh, Abimelech is kind of the main character in that passage because he just rules terribly. Um, he goes in, and one of the first things he does 
uh, in order to make sure that nobody else gets power as he kills the other 70 of Gideon's sons, save one who happened to get away. Um, and then he goes about convincing the people of Shechem to make him king. Uh, they make him king. But immediately after that happens, there's some, 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 some rift between them. God actually causes that rift because he wasn't happy with the way Abimelech was acting. And so there's a civil war that breaks out between Abimelech, the king, and Shechem, the people who made him king. And there's this terrible fighting. At one point, we actually see Abimelech storm like a stronghold. You would think about a tall castle kind of thing uh, with full of a thousand men and women, probably children as well, lighted on fire and they all burn to death. He's about to do the same thing later in the story when a woman from the top of the stronghold throws a millstone down, hits him in the head, crushes his skull, and just as he's about to die from this blow, he says to his armor bearer, please run me through with your sword so that I won't be known as the guy who got killed by a woman. The armor bearer does that exact thing. He dies and then everybody goes home. That's, that's pretty much chapter 9. I would encourage you to go ahead and read it. And actually, after he dies, that's what everybody does. Um, which shows how, how terrible the leader he was, uh, but also the chaos that he created while he was there. Uh, then we have a couple of judges, Tola and Jair, or Jair, that rule for 55 years, kind of uneventfully. And then we start this next cycle that brings us to the story of Jephthah, uh, chapter 11, that starts back in chapter 10. Israel again does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. This time they're not just worshiping Baal and Asherah, who have been the gods that have been showing up throughout Judges, but they're worshiping many gods from many different nations. And God gives Israel this time in the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, mainly the Ammonites, they're kind of the main antagonists of this cycle. And the people cry out, as they always do. And this time God comes to them, not immediately with deliverance, but instead comes to them with judgment to start off. Let me back up and say one thing I forgot about the Gideon story to tell you last week is that when the people cried out before Gideon, God sent a prophet to tell them about the things they were doing wrong and how they needed to correct before all that happened. Here in this story, before Jephthah comes on the scene, God basically tells the people of Israel, no, we've been doing this thing over and over again. People come in and take you over, you cry out for help, I save you, you disobey me. And it's happened too many times. So God tells them in chapter 10, I will save you no more. That's actually a direct quote from chapter 10. I will save you no more. As a matter of fact, God was going to say, here's what you need to do when you're in trouble. Cry out to the gods of the foreigners. The gods that you keep turning to. The gods that you keep worshiping besides me. Ask them for help this time and see what happens. And it kind of leaves them with that. The people of Israel, for their part in this story, they get rid of some of the household gods. They get rid of the foreign gods. They put them away at least for a while, hoping that God might change his mind. And that's kind of a foreshadowing of us. So that brings us to Jephthah in chapter 11. We learn of Jephthah becoming a ruler in kind of a uh, backhanded way. Uh, Jephthah is the son of Gilead, he's a Gileadite, but he's also, like a Benelite before him, the son of a concubine. And because that is the case, he was, he was exiled by his people, he was shunned by his people, he lived off by himself. And when things get really bad in the Ammonites, the people come to Jephthah and they say, well, you rule us? Will you lead us? Will you rescue us? And his response earlier in chapter 11 is, guys, why do you want my help? You've done nothing but shun me my entire life. Why do you expect me to help you now? And so they bargain with Jephthah. And they're like, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll make you the leader. of. We'll make you our leader. You'll be the head of Gilead if you come and help us out and you are victorious. So Jephthah says, okay, if I get to be boss, I'll go ahead and, and, and do what you're asking me to do. And that thing brings us 
right up to the passage we're going to. Oh, one last thing. Jephthah goes and meets with the Ammonites, uh, essentially tries to negotiate with them uh, without actually fighting. That doesn't go very well. They don't listen. And so that sets us up for the battle that's about to happen here in chapter 11 and everything that goes with that battle, which is really more of the story. Before we dive in, let's pray. Father, once again, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for your presence, through your spirit. God, I thank you for, I thank you that you are a merciful God. But despite our sin and our fallenness continues every day, every morning, to make your mercy new and fresh and extend yourself to us through your son Jesus and his Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for being with us now, even though we don't deserve it. And God, I pray that you would take over these next few moments. God, that your will alone would be done, your word alone would be communicated, that you would remove all chaos and distraction from our heads, from our hearts, so that we might focus on exactly what it is you have for each one of us this morning, the work of transformation that you want to do. God, I pray that you would do just that, and I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 29. Jephthah ready to battle. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors to my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of beneath twenty cities, and as far as Abel Kiramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter! You have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone. Two months, that I may go up and down in the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then she went away for two months and she wept, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Again, a heavy passage. One that, um, if I didn't believe that every word of God's word was inspired, I 
couple of pages to skip because it's hard. It's difficult. But when we dig in these difficult and uncomfortable passages, sometimes we find very, very, very important truths. Let's just start in verse 29. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord was on Jephthah. Again, God didn't pick Jephthah from the beginning. If you go back and you read Jephthah's like origin story earlier in chapter 11, the people decide that Jephthah's the boss, not God in this case. God is kind of out, out of pocket on this one because he has said, I will save you no more. You've done it enough. I'm going to take a step back. And so they've to fix things on their own. But here at this point, God re-enters the story. And the spirit of the Lord falls upon Jephthah. It's as if in this moment, he finally becomes a true judge that would rule and save Israel. But he quickly lives up to the reputation that the judges before him had set. Once again, he, like Gideon, attempts to manipulate God into his own plan with a vow, taking the stakes much higher than Gideon ever took. And Gideon was just about a wet fleece or a dry fleece. Now he is putting human lives on the line, and Jephthah is. He lists two conditions with his vow. Really, one only sticks out, but there's a second one that shows a little bit of the selfishness of the man. The first one is, if you give me victory, like if you help us beat the Ammonites, then I will do this for you. But the second part of that, you've got to read real close to catch it, is that he says, if you will give us victory, and when I come back in peace. In other words, he's saying to God, if you give me victory, if you give Israel victory, and you make sure that I survive this, you make sure that I get to come back in peace, then here's what I want for you. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to greet me when I come home, I will give that to you as a burnt offering. If you do this, God, if you give me victory, if you protect me, I will present this as a sacrifice to you. In some of your translations, if you're reading a different one than I am, it might say, whomever, or whoever comes out of the world to greet me when I get home. Matter of fact, in mine, there's a footnote that says the Hebrew is uncertain, and this could actually be read as whomever. It probably should be read as whomever. Because there's a couple of reasons why whatever doesn't work. First of all, it's pretty common in that day when there was a victory and the men returned for people to come out and greet them. So he's probably thinking a person would be coming out. Secondly, the whatever that would show up, maybe a dog or a donkey, something like that. They're unclean animals for sacrifice, so that wouldn't work either according to the Torah, according to the law. And so he's probably thinking of a human being. In other words, Jephthah is probably planning on sacrificing a human all along, just not as God. That's where the tragedy, at least as far as he's concerned, comes in. You see, when we try to bend God to our will, things break. Sometimes irrevocably. When we try to bend God to our will, things break. One prayer I try to pray, whenever, especially whenever I'm leading the church to make a decision. I remember praying this in several cases with our personnel meeting when we were looking for the different people on the staff. God, would you bend our will to yours? But too often we want God to bend his will to ours. And when we do that, things go wrong. Because our will is not God's will. God's will is perfect. And if we are set on our will over God's will, things will likely Something interesting about this passage when it comes to the battle. It only lasts two verses, the battle itself. It's only described in two quick verses. Why is that interesting? Because in other places in the book of Judges, the battle is the highlight. Think about Gideon in chapter 7. Uh, if you go back and you read the story of uh, Deborah and Barak again in chapters 4 and 5, not only is the battle listed in more detail, but we have a hymn singing victory of the battle that takes up an entire chapter. 
But here in this story, the story of Jephthah and the Ammonites, the battle lasts two verses. Why? Because the narrator, the, 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 the person who's telling the story, knows that that's not what you're interested in. Knows that that's not the focal point of the story. If you were reading this for the first time, you would be sitting on your seat wondering, who is it that's going to come out of the house when Jephthah gets home? Who is going to get the knife in the chest? Who is going to get sacrifice? And so the story moves very quickly. And again, I wish we could like, undo the knowledge that we have and read this fresh for the first time. You would feel the gravity of the story. That's something that I felt when I was studying earlier this week that, that I've forgotten about the story. I encourage you to try to get in it. To try to understand the depth of anguish that Jephthah must have felt when he saw his daughter coming out of the house. And try to understand the worthlessness that his daughter must have felt when her dad told her the news. So he comes home, there's victory. He's happy, the people are happy, ready to run out and greet him, dancing and music. And the first thing that he sees is his daughter. He immediately remembers his vow. What he told God he would do with the first person that came out to see him. And he reacts with shock, sorrow, grief, ripping his clothes. But he also reacts with reflection. And he tells his daughter, you have brought me low today. You have become a snare to me today. Deflecting his stupidity on her and perhaps on the God himself. He does seem to kind of at least admit that he made a mistake when he essentially says, to put it in our vernacular, I'll open my big fat mouth, my big fat mouth, and now I have to put up or shut up. Or shut up. Now I have to do what I said I was going to do. Again, I encourage you to think of what it must have been like. To get that news. I wonder what Jephthah's daughter thought. Again, being so happy. Your daddy is back. They just won. Yes. Let's go party. I imagine they thought, you know, just in, in, in the culture of the day, that there's going to be a fatted calf killed. There's going to be a party thrown. Maybe even worship, giving thanks to God for freeing them once again. And then she gets the news. Jephthah's daughter must have believed that both her father and her God had bargained her life away. Imagine how worthless she must have felt. When I read this passage, my thought is, why did she just give in? That's one of my thoughts. Like, she just kind of goes along. She asked for two months, right before it happens, to mourn everything that she's going to miss out on. That's what Bethlehem says, to mourn her virginity, to mourn her youth. Uh, it was so important for Israelite women of the day to, to have a husband, to marry, to give birth, to mourn all of that and never happen. So she has two months to do that, but still she comes back and you wonder why. It's because she didn't have any recourse. Who was going to save her? In her mind, the way the story was being told to her, her dad had used her as a bargaining chip for victory, and God had taken the bet. That's the story that she's presented. Now, I don't think that's reality. Hear me say that. I don't think that's what God is doing. But that's the view of God that Jephthah had and that he extended to his daughter. So she died, if we take this to mean that she actually died, which I'll get to that in a minute. She died believing that that was God's will that it should happen. In verse 38, it says that after she got back, 
from the Tumansom warning that Jephthah, quote, did with her according to the vow that he had made. The big question that always comes up in this passage is, did he really kill her? Did he really go through with it? Some scholars try to read it a different way and say, oh, he didn't actually kill her, he just dedicated her to the temple service for the rest of her life. So that's why she's mourning her virginity, because she's giving that up in order to serve God, almost like a modern-day Catholic nun. She's giving herself to the church. There is some evidence that reminds me that it's in the Old Testament temple worship, but there's some common-sense questions that need to be asked if that's the case. Why did she need two months to mourn if she was going to have her whole life to do that? Why did the women of Israel commemorate four days a year exactly what happened with her as she was just giving herself to the church and would be there with them forever and ever? And we can't get past the fact that the simplest answer is almost always the right one. And the simplest answer in Scripture is, he did to her exactly what he valued to do, which is exactly what Scripture says. It goes unspoken because it is unspeakable. We don't see the details of the sacrifice played out. Like we do with Abraham and Isaac. You know that story? Where Abraham was about to plunge the knife into Isaac's chest. The reason why we see the details of that is because we know that God stopped it from happening. He said, don't do that. This isn't what I want. And that begs the question, why didn't he step in and do the same thing here? But if we're asking that question, which I ask when I come to this passage, if we get lost in that question, we're missing the point. Because this Israel had decided long ago that they weren't going to listen to the voice of God. That they were going to get their information from God, of, of God from other places. Namely the people around them. And that's exactly why they were in the boat that they were in. They had stopped listening to God a long time ago. Because God had already given them allowance to not go through with this if he had just known God and known the law. Here's some truth in Scripture when you dig a little deeper that you find about this story. God's law had allowances that would have allowed Jephthah to save his daughter's life. Disobeying or breaking a vow is definitely sinful. Look at Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, and you can see one example of how a vow should not be broken, and it is a sinful thing. But I would encourage you in your quiet time to open up the book of Leviticus. I know it's not a book we often encourage you. You don't hear encouraged very often to read in quiet time. But open up the book of Leviticus, chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. And in that passage, what you will see is in the law, there is an allowance that if a vow is made regarding a person, usually it would have been for the trading of people, not for actual sacrifice of people. But if a vow is made regarding a person, then that person can be ransomed. That person can be bought back. And it goes so far, like Leviticus does, very detailed to say this is how much this person would cost, this is how much this person would cost, you know, on the top of person, gender of person, age of person, so on and so forth. That's in the law, that they could be bought back, that the vow could be undone if a little bit of money was spent. And you might say, well, that's a stretch. Now, I don't see that ever, uh, ever happening, somebody actually doing that. It actually happens in Scripture, though, a little bit later in the story. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 46, I'll say that again just in case anybody wants to study. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 46, we have the story of Saul leading his men into battle. And Saul makes a vow to God. He says, God, if any of my men eat before we are victorious this day, then I will give them up. I will allow them to be killed. They will be killed. If anybody eats, that's what's going to happen. 
Jonathan, Saul's son, not knowing that his dad had made that vow, is traveling along, sees some honey on a honeycomb, I guess, and decides to eat the honey, not knowing that his dad had made that vow. Things become tough in battle for Israel. Uh, Saul begins to realize something is wrong, and so he, with, with casting lots, he figures out that something is up with Jonathan. It finally comes out that Jonathan had eaten when he wasn't supposed to. And he had broken the vow, and so Saul, in typical Saul fashion, actually acting much like Jephthah, he says, okay, sorry, Jonathan, I don't want to do this, but you have to go. And then it's the men in the army with Saul and Jonathan that speak up and actually provide rescue. And they say, not Jonathan. Do you really think we should sacrifice Jonathan after all he is and after the relationship we had with them? And it says in that passage that they ransomed Jonathan. And Jonathan didn't die that day. The vow was broken, and Israel was still successful. So we have, even within the law itself, the law that Jephthah is so desperate not to break, we have an allowance to save his daughter's life. But here's the problem, and here's the big problem with Jephthah. He didn't know that. That's the only assumption I can make. If he knew that, he would have done something. We see his grief. He never thought his daughter would be the man. It was a foolish vow to make to begin with. Certainly foolish because somebody was going to pay. He never thought his daughter would be the price that he would have to pay. So he makes the vow. He didn't want to do it. I'm sure he wished he could undo it. But he didn't even know God well enough to know that he could undo it. His view of God was so jacked up that he didn't even realize the very law that he was holding himself to would have allowed her to save, would have allowed him to save his daughter's life. And then juxtapose that with a God who essentially goes back on his word in order to save Israel. Let me tell you what I mean. In chapter 10 of this very book, in Judges, verse 13, God says to the people, point blank, I will save you no more. God tells them, I am done saving you. Yet here in chapter 11, the spirit of the Lord falls upon Jephthah in verse 29. And in verse 32, these exact words are written in relation to Ammonites and Jephthah that God gave them into his hands. Just like every other victory that Israel had had in the book of Judges, God is the actor, God is the warrior, God is the savior. So even in this very story, in order to show mercy to his people, God goes back on his word. God says, I know I told you I would not save you anymore, but because of God's overabundance of mercy, he says, I can't, like this is who God is, I have to help my people. And he extends himself to the people regardless of what he said. And yet, Jephthah is unwilling or unable, for whatever reason, doesn't even know that he can take back the vow in order to save his daughter. And his daughter goes through with it likely because she thought that God was in on it. And if she didn't, then maybe her people would pay for it. Then maybe God would take the victory back, the Ammonites would come, and once again there would be oppression. It is a terrible story simply because people didn't know God. Simply because their view of God was off. Because he didn't really know God, Jephthah has no mercy to show. Because he didn't know God, Jephthah had no mercy to give. He didn't know the God of mercy. He didn't know the God of grace and forgiveness. He knew the God of battle and of war. He knew the God of recompense and revenge. He didn't know the God of mercy, so he had no mercy to give. 
There is an element at play in this story called syncretism. I tell you that word because what syncretism basically means is taking religions and mixing them together. It's exactly one of the things that God wanted to avoid when he sent the people into the promised land. I'll read a passage here in just a moment from Deuteronomy that shows that exact truth. So syncretism for them would have been taking elements of foreign worship and applying them to God. In other words, using child sacrifice in order to worship or manipulate God. Those are not things that God was for. God is totally against them. We can see that in the Abraham and Isaac story. God does not allow human sacrifice. No way, no how. Yet Jephthah, because he had seen it in other groups around him, thought that he could use it in his worship and service to God. Deuteronomy 12, 29-31. God writes these words, warning Israel, again, if Jephthah would just have known when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them. After they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? That I also may be the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. This is why the people were supposed to be left, the Canaanites. Because God knew what was going to happen. And He warned the people. He told them, don't bring in that worship to worship me. Because every abominable thing happens with that worship, including the murder of your sons and daughters in the name of God. And that's exactly what happens. Israel becomes the plague they were supposed to remove. They were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. That was the goal from the very beginning. Genesis 12, Abraham. That's what God told Abraham to this is not that. This is the opposite of that. They have become like everyone else around them. And maybe this is where we find a touchdown. To our world today. Are we syncretistic? Do we take things that the culture tells us and try to bring them to our God? Try to manipulate our God according to cultural mores. Here's one small example, especially small compared to the story. America in 2019, self-help is on the rise, right? Everybody wants to be the best you can be, and you want people to tell you that all the time, right? If you just do you, and you try really hard, and you work really hard, and you do all these things, and everything will be perfect, you know, you can live your best life now, and everything will be wonderful. And we have taken that into the church, and we forget the whole reality of Scripture that says you can't do this on your own. Your works are filthy like rags. You're lost and broken, and all of us are sinful or in need of rescue. That's what the Scripture says. But we try to bring in this little self-help mentality. Ah, if you just do this, everything will be wonderful. That is an example of syncretism. It happens other places in our world as well. Different things that we bring in from the culture that we try to apply to God that have no place in our worship of God. But that's only one example. Let me ask you. What do we bring in from the culture around us? Because a wrong view of God can be disastrous for God's people. 
You see, Jephthah didn't really know God. That's the problem in this story. Not that God was absent. Not that God wasn't communicating his truth. Not that God didn't want to save. Oh, I'm assuming all of that is the case, but the people didn't want to hear it. Because they didn't know God. From the top to the bottom. They didn't know the God who was merciful. They didn't know the God who in the Old Testament says that his loving kindness extends to the thousandth generation. They didn't know that God. They didn't know the God that forgives. They didn't even know God well enough to look at their current circumstance and see how many times he had saved them and know that despite themselves, he is a merciful, graceful, loving, stupendous God. They saw God, again, as a warrior king who they could manipulate in order to take over other people. And because of that, he sacrificed his daughter. Again, I don't want you to miss the gravity of the story. He actually said that I will sacrifice her as a burnt offering. There's laws that spell out what that should look like. And if you go back and you read them, you realize that it is a terrible process. There are breaking of bones, spilling of blood, ritual cleansing, things that need to happen. And all of that was done with his daughter. If he did according to the vow that he made, yes, that is the case. It should make your stomach drop out. It should make you nauseous. You should go pale in the face when you realize just how despicable this thing really was. That this man went forward with this because his view of God was so jacked up that he thought that's what God somehow wanted. Why? Because that's what the culture around him told him that that's what God wanted. What does the culture around us tell us that God wants that we miss? Because it was his daughter who paid for it. The weakest normally do pay for it. The people that we're supposed to lead and care for normally are the ones that pay for it when we miss the mark. And I wonder what we're missing in our culture today. Because I don't know you, but I know me. And I know that when one of the, the touchstone, the, the, the hot button issues of our day comes up, I know that one of my first reactions is not to hit my knees in prayer, to open God's Word and seek truth from it. I know that one of my first reactions is to get on Twitter and see what such and such has to say. Or to turn on the news station of my choice to see that, make sure that I'm where I'm supposed to be in line with the folks that I'm supposed to be in line with. I know that that's often one of my first reactions, and I repent because of that, because I am doing exactly what Jeff is doing. I'm looking somewhere besides God for answers when no one else has them. And so in the next year and a half, you're going to hear a lot about those issues, aren't you? I'm grateful that we live in a free world, that we live in a free country, but the campaigning makes me tired. Can I get an amen from somebody else in the house? And so you're going to hear a lot about it in the next year and a half. And instead of wondering, what does this person have to say? What does this person have to say? Whether they are a talking head or they live in the White House, whatever they say doesn't matter according to what God says. What he says is what matters. And I'm not taking a side. That's usually the thing that happens when we come to this point. Right? Whatever side that you're on, you're assuming that I'm against you. Right? But I'm thinking you should do this better or your people are wrong because of this and this and this and this and this. No. What I'm telling you is... If we are the people of the one true God, sticking sides won't matter. Both of them are a little jacked up, if I'm being completely honest. Maybe a lot jacked up. And instead of listening to what people have to say, we need to think about what God has to say. Because what happens when we listen to the doctrine of men? 
When we listen to the doctrine of men, the weakest among us get hurt. When we listen to the doctrine of men, we think that choice allows us to dispense of a child that we don't want. When we listen to the doctrine of men, we can look at people sitting on our southern borders as if they are objects and not actual people. I know justice needs to be done, and we need to think about how to handle that, but they are people. Can I get an amen on that? And they need to be treated with dignity and love and respect. And anything that comes with any different answer isn't from the Bible, isn't from our God, isn't from the Holy Spirit, but it's from the evil that is present and active and living and alive in this world, and we need to shut that stuff off. And listen instead to what our God has to say. That is your textbook. That is where we come from. Because when the people of God don't know God, things can get disastrous. A wrong view of God can be disastrous for God's people and for the world. It's happened over and over again in human history. Hitler had a view of God. That didn't work out very well. It's very easy to look at people because they're right in front of us. But please, people of God, may we not make the mistake of Jephthah. May we instead seek to know God's will and not human will. And may we live in the middle and this messy, trying to just follow God as faithfully as we can, despite what other people think of it. Despite what category it falls into or what party it agrees with, may we instead follow the one true God. Your view of God, what you think about when you think about God, according to A.W. Tozer, is the most important thing about you. Because it has this habit of coming out. Jephthah is the perfect example. His view of God was messed up and his daughter made him May we have a view of God that is scriptural. A God who is loving and forgiving and merciful while also just and righteous and sovereign. So during our time of invitation this morning, I invite you in the dialogue with God to pray right where you're at and to ask yourself and for God to reveal to you the ways that you are listening to the world and not to Him. Maybe it's time for repentance. Maybe it's time for asking for wisdom. But I encourage you to seek His face during this time. I'll be down here and pray with you. The altar will be open if you would like to pray there. You can always pray right where you're at. If it's anything else you want to pray with me about, just come on down. Whether it's something completely off topic or you're interested in uh, becoming a part of our community. We'd love to talk to you about that during this time. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to lead us in the song of invitation. And you move in whatever way God is calling